Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady. My co-host, Matt Scott, is not available today, so we will see him on a future episode. But I have a great friend of mine, a longtime friend. He is a previous podcast guest, so this is our first time that we've had a, a second run, and that is Brian Bass. And Brian is in the episode titled... The Real Andy. The Real Indiana Jones, that's right, exactly. So uh, Brian is an archaeologist by trade. He is also a lifetime adventurer. He has lived around the world and traveled around the world by four-wheel drive and by motorcycle. He also has a very wide-sweeping scope of interests as well, which we're going to get into more today. There was a lot that we wanted to talk about in the last podcast that we weren't able to get to. Uh, So thank you, Brian, for being on the podcast again and spending some time in Prescott with me. Great to be back. Yeah. We've been no pressure, by the way, by calling out that I'm the first return Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you are. And that's because there's so much fun stuff for us to be able to chat about. And we're always scheming future adventures. In fact, maybe we'll even talk about a few of those today on the episode, but uh, it would be great to go through a couple of those things that we weren't able to really talk about last time. So get into those with a little bit deeper dive, which I think will be a lot of fun. This episode is supported in part by Red Ox Manufacturing. Since 1986, Red Ox Manufacturing has been handcrafting the toughest soft-sided travel luggage in the world. Founded and operated by second-generation United States veterans, Red Ox bags are backed by the industry's finest warranty, the Noble Lifetime Warranty. You break it, we'll wonder how, then we'll repair it or replace it, no questions asked. Designed and lovingly built with pride in Billings, Montana, using 99% American source materials, Red Ox bags are unique and innovative and tough as tanks. One of the first questions that I thought would be interesting to get into more on the technical side of things is really that subject around everyday carry because I I tend to just ask you what you're using for a pen or, or a knife or whatever because it just saves me so much time and research because you usually have it nailed by the time I ask you. So let's go through what your current everyday carry is the things that you tend to have on your person uh, when you're in North America, and then, of course, how that changes when you travel around the world, for example. Yeah, no problem. I think for me, daily carry is has to equate to daily use. Mm. While I might have some really cool things in my safe or around the house, sitting on my desk, I don't necessarily carry those unless there is a scenario or scenarios where I would envision using them. So every day I have my usual knife. I can't say it's the usual, a knife. Uh, in my pocket, the clip kind. So what would you typically have on your person when you're on the ranch in, in California? Well, actually, this is going to be repeat, but what I have on now, which is what I carry most days, is a uh, really great knife by uh, a guy named Robert Smith uh, from Gooseworks. Okay. And uh, he's also the uh, owner of uh, Resco Instruments. They make watches. Yeah, beautiful watches. Yeah, he's yeah. a former Navy SEAL, and um, his stuff is just, it's just field ready. I suppose people could collect his knives, but that's not really what he's aiming for. So I carry that. And is it and a folder or is it's it? It's a folder, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Very basic design. He has influences that are very obvious when you see the knives, but they're just great for the field, for thrashing about. Um, you don't pull it out and go, ah, I wonder if I should really use this for that task. You just take the knife out and use it. And then the other, uh, 
everyday carry is a, uh, it's going to sound crazy, but it's a uh, Victorinox uh, 108, the German army knife, GAK is what people call it. I actually carry one that wasn't one of the issue ones, but it's, they have red handle and green handle and they're 108 millimeters long. And yeah. that's why they're called the 108s. They don't make them anymore, unfortunately. They're a pretty interesting knife. They're just a great knife for the field. They only have a pivot at, at one end. They're super robust. When I was a grad student, I, that was the only knife that I had. And hmm. because it has a very long, uh, there's a saw with a really stout screwdriver, blade screwdriver at the very end. So when I was riding around on my R100 uh, PD, that was like the everyday tool, was <laughs> sure. that, you know? And so that's really, that is it for my, it must be on me every day, all day. It doesn't matter if I have like sure. know, nicer pair of trousers or whatever. I had a, uh, for the 108, I'm not carrying them in my pocket. I have a, there's a great sheath maker, a holster maker in where I live in the Santinez Valley. I dreamt up uh, the optimal pancake type oh, sheath sure, for sure. it. Uh, so it can kind of be worn off to the side, similar to like what people, people are familiar with how like uh, the old snub nose revolvers were carried that kind of a sheath. And so it's, it's obviously for, uh, for this knife for the Victorinox 108. So it just kind of stashes away on my hip and it doesn't bother me when I drive, but it's always there as yeah. a corkscrew on it. So you're, you're, you're ready for all the much anything, all right? the important stuff, oh, yeah. right? Oh yeah. Paint a picture on how long you have had that knife. That's amazing. You said you had it when you were in graduate school. Yeah. So you have not, I mean, knock on wood or whatever, but you, you've kept this knife now for decades. Well, I should say to qualify this, that the one I have on me is not that exact same okay. one. So I, I gave that, that other one away. I paid 10 Swiss francs for it at an outdoor wow. market in Zurich wow. uh, and then carried it forever and then uh, recently gave it away. Uh, as a gift. And well, you know, I'm not giving away here, but online, if you get onto different uh, fora and things like this, you can find the, the 108s. They're very affordable. They're they're kind of collectible because there are so many different uh, manufacturers down the line that sure. somehow had license or something like this from Victorinox to make sure. them. And so there's a whole little sub community of a sub community that collects these things. And so it has a cutting blade. It has a saw with a with a screwdriver tip, and then it also has a corkscrew. Yeah, and an and, awl. And an awl yeah, as well. Of yeah, course, and, you got to have an awl. Of course. And then some of them, you know, some of the, the ones that are a little bit harder to find have a, uh, like a striker on the saw blade on the side for strike on anything matches. You oh. can probably use it as a fingernail file or something like sure. that. And so those are, those are pretty cool too, to track down. It's and, well thought out. Yeah, that sounds like it. Speaking of the corkscrew, this is something I don't think we talked about much or at all on the last podcast, but in addition to you being an archeologist, you've also become a vintner yeah. over the last yeah. decade. That was a trajectory. What, yeah. What <laughs> inspired you to want to create your own wine? That's a, an easy and difficult question. I guess I never really thought about wine one way or the other until I started my field work down in Croatia uh, on an island off the coast there where every family, almost every family in the village where I was based, they make their own wine. Mm. And, you know, where I'm from in California, you know, at that time it was like Napa. I didn't know anything about, about San Inez Valley or Sonoma or any of the other Russian river. I would have just excellent wine. And here I'm like, this is a penniless grad student. And then I, you know, I would follow around and watch you know, them topping the barrels and doing different things. And, uh, and I was only at the tail end of a harvest once down there at, at that time. So it just kind of puts 
put the hook in me for trying good wine. It doesn't have to be expensive wine, just good wine. And everything there was just, it was the vintage from last year. I mean, sure. were, it wasn't, you know, they would pull out some bottle, you know, this is my grandfather's from, you know, 47 years ago or something like that. And that just kind of put the hook in me. And then when I moved back to the U.S., I ended up in the wine country, one of the wine countries in Santinez Valley. And obviously got into it, you know, helped out during harvest, uh, worked in the, one of the labs at a pretty well-known winery there. They just needed someone to measure bricks, which is sugar and pH and help out. And they gave me wine as a sort of a thanks anyway. Sure. You know, they said, well, hey, are you familiar with, you know, high school chemistry? And uh, I didn't really, you know, give them my grade when I was a, <laughs> in a 10th grade chemistry grade wasn't the best, but, but I could cope with it, obviously. Sure. And, um, you know, one thing led to another, just kind of got into the scene. And then I found out that there was uh, evening courses for, you know, people like me or professionals, mm -hmm. but could study up on wine and winemaking. And then it was, and it came down to a dare. Myself and four other friends, we just said, hey, let's just go in on a ton of grapes and see what we can do. And so I called all my winemaker buddies, said, hey, can I borrow some barrels? Can we borrow this? Can we do that? Can you help us with this? Tell us what we do when this happens. Yeah. And then that's how it started. Amazing. And what, because I think back when I was stationed in Italy, when I was in the Air Force, and I remember I would go and spend time with some of the Italian families that were also firefighters on the base. They would always have their local, their family wine. Maybe they didn't themselves produce it, but their uncle did or some, it was their family wine and it was all reused bottles bottles with like questionable corks and everything. The wine always did taste so good. What's the difference? I mean, maybe it's just context and I was in this wonderful experience and the food was wonderful. And But what is it about like the traditional Croatian or Italian table wine that makes it so just drinkable, enjoyable? Well, it could be there are so many factors that really play right. into it. I mean, um, on the Croatian coast, I would say that on the whole, if it's family vintage that's, you know, from the last harvest, it's fairly common for them to mix water in it Oh, when you're actually drinking it. So you'll fill about half with the wine and half with water and it's more of a beverage. Interesting. And so then, you know, they'll even serve it to kids that, you know, here would be underage, but that's just normal there. And you'll have it with your lunch and with your dinner. So it's, it's fairly common, but you know, back to the, the flavor profile, I mean, there are a lot of things that factor in and it could be the setting. Yeah. I, I, I could safely say that Probably some of the stuff that I drank, you know, man, in a different setting, or if somebody, you know, did fake it and pull a cork out of something and it had a label, I would say, whoa, that was maybe not the best, at least on my palate. Right. For example, with white wines, I, I still train with white wines because, uh, so, you know, it might sound poncy, but for me, white wines on my palate are either really great or, or terrible. And so, you know, I try to plow in there, delve into the complexity and, and try and refine my palate, you know, because sure. somebody will hand me something and go, this is really great. And, you know, my brain either has the killer or it's really bad and not really bad, but, you know, it just doesn't hit my brain the right way. And then with red wines, completely the opposite. Yeah, the definitely. The whole spectrum hits my brain. My, sure. my palate sends the right signal. Got it. And that's over time. Of obviously, yeah, totally. You know, and I, I am tasting other people. Yeah, I'm a, com I'm a complete uh, neophyte when it comes to understanding wine, but I do enjoy drinking it. But that's all I, that matters. I know really, that's all that matters. Yeah, and I do notice that context makes such a difference. You can be out with great friends, having a great meal, and talking about travel, and you know whatever our passions may be, and. The, the wine always does taste better in that context. And, and I think that that's also really wonderful as well. And a reminder that you don't have to spend $100 on a bottle of wine no. because no. You know, it is about the context. So just enjoy the time with your friends or family. I'm still trying to figure out why for me in the outdoor setting, red wines just are the best. Oh, yeah. Like, and when you're 
traveling or you're by the campfire. Now I, I haven't figured out, I haven't, it's not quantitative, of course. <laughs> this is just right. like a yeah, you know, theoretical, the cup, right? right? But it might be that usually the wine is a little bit on the warmer side than normal mm. because it's been in your, your truck or something mm. like that. I don't know. I, I, you know, I find that, you know, especially in the camping settings, I love red wine. <laughs> and it all, everything seems to taste so much better. I mean, if, if I do salmon over or next to the fire and there's just something about food and even a nice drink around a campfire in a setting like that. So again, context comes back to it and, and all the more reason for us to get out right, and, right, and, go and camp yeah, yeah, exactly. or spend or have a great meal with friends, right? All the more reminder to do that for sure. Yeah, that is so fascinating about the wine process and it's well outside the wheelhouse of this podcast typically. But I think the reason why I asked that is what I find is that as people travel, their interests do become quite broad and they're usually influenced by something in their travel. So you just mentioned that time that you had in Croatia and drinking the table wine and starting to experience the harvest. And it created this seed for you in, in many ways for being a future vintner. So, oh yeah. And, and it came back years later, mm. you know, the boomerang went out and then I kind of forgot that, you know, it was floating around out there and then just hit me one day when I realized, wait, I'm, I'm living in one of the wine countries of California. Sure. Why not like jump in and, you know, learn more, not spend more, but just learn more. Sure. You know, and of course I would cruise around and if some tasting room had some, something going on where it didn't really, other than the tip, you know, I didn't have to pay. Sure. You know, <laughs> totally. And your, your wine is also, it's available in many of the restaurants in your area. In a few. Yeah. And what's, yeah. what's the name of your wine brand? Brancino. Brancino. You won't, you won't find the website yet where it's yeah, work sure. in progress. You sure. know how that yeah. is. Yeah. No, totally. Well, no, you're too busy consuming the inventory. Story, right? right, right, exactly. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. On the other part of the everyday carry, you do tend to be fairly mindful of the clothing that you you have. Even this morning when we were grabbing coffee, uh, you talked about when you were in Edinburgh and you were, or you would go into the outdoors there in in the northern part of the UK that you would have to bring along all of these different layers because the weather could change so dramatically. So what are some of the things that, how do you think about that today? You do live in, in a, like this sunny part of California, but yeah, right. maybe when yeah. you're not, maybe when you're not well, in we the sunny. We have like a month of bad weather. Don't <laughs> yeah, give me that, right? Yeah. So during the month of bad weather, like what do you typically bring along as like your mid layer and your outer layer, your shell? What do you typically use Well, now? it's interesting because over time, um, I was in, in Scotland in the, in the early and through the mid nineties and, um, maybe Marina wool was around then the thinner wool mm. layers, but I, I, you know, I didn't, if it was, I couldn't afford it. So it was just sort of having some sort of long John esque thing under, right. underneath and then, uh, like a heavy sweater. And now I definitely focus on Marina wool. As a matter of fact, I can almost exclusively wear just that. I yeah. mean, everything from a collared shirt. I mean, I wear it on hot days, mm. uh, not because I, I need the warmth, but because if you just have one loose layer of that doesn't smell, you know, you can kind of, they, they, they tend to look a little bit nicer. I, I find that I, at least for me, I get a lot of holes in them from just wear doing seat belts in old trucks or whatever sure. things clip in and then you get a little tear, but well, that's part of the look. Yeah. Um, so I focus on that as sort of my bottom layer and sometimes the mid layer, because that 
Also, obviously, when wool gets wet, you know, you retain some some warmth there. And I think I feel that that's important. And then for the outer layers, I've recently sort of rediscovered uh, down jackets. Some of the stuff from Patrick Ma right. at Prometheus Design Works. Yeah, those are that great, stuff. great little puffy jackets. Yeah. I'm totally sold on them. Yeah. And yeah, then the yeah. fact that you can you can stuff it into the back pocket and make a camp pillow, and then it also includes a neck it also includes a neck pillow <laughs> yeah. stuff sack. Yeah. And I've used that on every trip now, and I just leave it stuffed into the pocket while I'm on the plane. That way, I just have it clipped to my carry on bag or whatever. Yeah, they're really good. Yeah, definitely. they're very impressive. The qual- overall quality. And also now jackets. there's some technology that's gone into the down, mm. so when it gets wet, it doesn't clump. Um, the material that the the outer material of the jackets where, you know, in the old days, you know, if you had any splash, it immediately went through the fabric right. to the feathers. So that's definitely, that game has changed too. For my outer layer kind of depends on where I am. And if I need another layer of warmth, I'm perfectly fine just having like some sort of Gore-Tex-esque yeah. uh, right. outer and without any insulation. Mm. And I'll put that on over the top of everything else. I do like vests. Yeah. Uh, they don't have to be down necessarily, but uh, I do appreciate uh, different kinds of vests that have some wind protection and warmth because obviously that is the core. And I find that, you know, a vest is a little bit smaller. It rolls up easier into your rucksack. True. And then if you need, you know, if, if things start to get cold, especially when you're like riding a motorcycle, something like that, I'm usually fine just putting the vest on, zipping, yeah, it, makes zipping it up. And then, you know, then I'm, then I'm fine. I don't think I've ever had a vest. I mean, that, but it makes sense, especially with the motorcycle where you're really space limited. You could just add that warming layer of a vest. Yeah. And then, sure. you know, obviously the down vests are, they roll up super small. You can also use those as a pillow, yeah. you know, when you're looking at aspect of motorcycle where sure. you want to kind of focus on every last little piece that you're taking along with you. And the jacket you've got on right now, what's, what's this one? This one looks, <laughs> this was a like gift. you could do some welding. And uh, yeah, right. It's, uh, it's, it's like Filson influenced. It's made by a uh, free note cloth and they're down in, uh, near San Diego. I, I want to say San Juan Capistrano maybe. Uh, so they're, uh, like a SoCal company there. It's just yeah, cool jacket wax cloth that, but it's have a different cut to it. And yeah, it's, yeah. you know, I like it. This is my, my land cruiser, you know, working on the farm jacket. <laughs> it's you know, perfect. It's, really, it's totally great. Yeah, yeah it's perfect. Yeah. Well, let's segue that. I mean, talk a little bit about your newest acquisition, your newest vehicle that you added to the fleet. Yeah, I guess maybe uh, a little more than a year ago, um, picked up from a, from a buddy, Toyota um, Land Cruiser BJ40, 1978 BJ40. It's a diesel. It started out life in, as a Canadian market uh, left-hand drive uh, diesel. It's one of those trucks where you, know, you just don't really know the full history, although the person that he bought it from, the, the gentleman who I bought it from, said that it was down at a coffee bean plantation in Central America for quite a while. Normally I would be, eh, well, you know, because I obviously as an archaeologist, you hear a lot of stories and, sure. uh, that are pretty far from the truth. But um, just wrenching under the hood, there's red dirt <laughs> caked everywhere. Sure. And uh, so it's, I would believe that you can see where the rust is and everything and the repairs. Sure. What did somebody uh, recently gave me the term native repair, right. you know, where you can see that this was done in some garage in some village somewhere. And it just wasn't to get it going. just to keep it going. And at some point, one of the previous owners put in a, um, a three B uh, diesel motor from uh, 1982. So it's, you know, it's a little bit better than the motor that originally came in it. And then uh, later on, I'm assuming it may Maybe, you know, concurrent with that installation, uh, it has a, uh, an H55F five-speed manual tranny. Perfect. So it's this kind of sluggo non-turbo diesel, but with a five-speed training. Yeah, so where I live, overdrive. I can, yeah, I, I can get on the freeway. I mean, obviously people are passing me, but you know, I could cruise along at, you know, 60, 65 miles an hour and, you know, feel like, all right, I'm, I'm holding my 
my own. Why the BJ40? I remember around the time that you bought it, you were looking at trying to find a, a diesel G-Wagon. Mm-hmm. You were looking at a couple different kinds of vehicles. What ultimately settled you on the on the BJ? Well, the BJ came along before my my quest for for a uh, diesel uh, G-Wagon okay. came along. Oh, I got you. I think the, you know, I've lived with this guilt for a long time. I had the world's cheriest FJ40, 1977 FJ40. Bought it. It had literally, you can't make this up. It had belonged to an old lady. She liked shopping with it because it had the ambulance doors. Sure. It, the top had, I bought this in San Diego, by the way. The top had never been off. It had never been off-road. It really didn't have any scrapes. In sure. the, it had the original rear heater Everything was was right. intact and just so sweet. I bought it in, I guess, 1986 or 87. So it wasn't, it was barely 10 years old. Sure. Could hardly call it vintage at the time. And then shortly before I moved to Europe for grad school, I thought, well, these things are a dime a dozen. I mean, I had plenty of buddies who had them. Sure. I'll just sell it. And, you know, if I want something similar when I move back, you know, I'll just get it. And, you know, six plus years later, seven years later, it had already become a cult car. I can't say cult classic, but people were already hunting them down and I didn't have the financial horsepower to go and pick one up. And then this BJ came along. Sure. And I was just chatting with my buddy. Yeah. And he said, Hey, I'm thinking about selling it. I want to have a muscle car. And he didn't even finish the sentence. And I said, I'll figure it out. (laughs) I'm buying that thing. That is crazy that your FJ40 was a 77. And I didn't even know that you had an FJ40 before because the one and only FJ40 I ever owned was a 1977. Best year ever for Well, it was a pretty good year for those. They had the disc brakes in the front and the later, like the early 80 ones were so limited production and they had some additional things like power steering and all that made those very, very expensive. The 77 I had, it was red and it had the rear heater, uncut fenders. And I drove that for, for five years. I made, didn't make a lot of money on it, but I made, it was I never yeah, did any. I, I cleared a little bit. With yeah, my I thing. never had to fix anything. I did add things like air conditioning and I did gussy it up a little bit. You know, I put a, a winch on the front and things like that, but I never, I never needed to fix anything. It never broke. It never had needed a repair to use a car for five years and then make a little profit on it. That just doesn't have, everything's an appliance now. Yeah, totally. And to, totally. to be able to have a vehicle like that, I mean, that's why they're so charming. Yeah. And I had in that vein, I had to have some redemption in some way. Yeah. Uh, and now I find, I mean, it's my daily driver, at sure. the BJ40. I mean, every day I can't wait for, you know, I got to go to the post office. Cool. Get in there. I mean, right now the, uh, the passenger side window doesn't lower. I've got sure. the parts on order, but you know, the crank doesn't work and yeah. uh, it leaks a little bit of water if it rains on it. Sure. Uh, and I now park it under a carport. So it's, it's protected, you know, sure. at least from, from that kind of stuff. But I just, I can't, that I is look, so every great. day I look forward to jumping in it. If, if, you know, I make up an excuse, you know, I'm going to go to the market. And that's cause you needed to give your Tacoma a little bit of a break. What year is your Tacoma? 2003. And how many miles did you just hit with that thing? Uh, just crossed 300,000 miles. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as long as I have known you, you've had that truck and yeah, did nothing, you buy it new or near yeah, new? brand new? I think yeah. it had like 20, you know, one miles on it or something. It's, un- it's it unbelievable. And you've really been thoughtful about how you've modified it. Being a Gen 1 Tacoma, it is kind of that high water mark. It was still a little smaller than they got in the Gen 2. The motor was fine. The 3.4 liter was fine. Uh, very, very reliable. People commonly get 
you know, over 300,000 miles out of those engines, but you were pretty tasteful in how you modified it. What were some of, what are some of the things that you did to your Tacoma that you liked the most? The, the modifications that you think really stood the test of time for you? Well, I could definitely say the steel wheels that are just the Toyota manufactured. I think they're actually made to be uh, the spares. Yeah. You know, they look cool. I yeah, think I had them powder cool. coated early on. Yeah. Uh, they come black anyway, but you know, they'll start to rust because maybe they, they just, in, they're purposed for being squirreled away as a spare. But I put those on it and sold the, it came with some aluminum wheels. I really liked that. Yeah. That was more of an aesthetics thing, obviously, they but, but great, as far yeah. as, you know, holding up too. Sure. Um, I mean, you know, I beat them up and everything's fine. You know, yeah. I don't go, Oh, wow. There's a ding here. There's a ding there. You'd hit it with a rattle can. And then everyone comments on it. Like, where did you get them? And I say, yeah. well, you know, you could just go to the dealership and get the spare rim it's sure. steel. Well, that, that truck really hasn't had that many mods. I have like King shocks on it, uh, which ended up kind of lifting it. Oh, you know what? I do have uh, the Deaver leaf springs. Yeah. Those are great. I went to the Deaver shop wherever that is in the LA yeah. basin. That was crazy. Cause they started out making leaf springs for buggies and carriages. And buggies, and yeah. 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 So cool. Crazy. Yeah. And then there I'm talking with the guy about, you know, this is what I'm going to have in the back of my Tacoma and stuff. And then other than that, I think the only other thing besides the bumpers was uh, putting on a snorkel. Yeah. Everything else is bone stock. Yeah. And you put, uh, is it an ARB bumper in the front? ARB bumper in the front. One day I was down at uh, Illumines for something unrelated and with the Tacoma and somebody there, not Dave, but somebody else yeah. uh, mentioned that uh, they had done a template for that Gen 1 Tacoma for a rear bumper. They said they could make one up if I was interested in it. I just said, oh yeah, let's do it. Let's do yeah. it. So so on the rear, cool. it has a, an Illumines bumper. Which is good because those, those trucks were fairly sensitive to payload. They didn't have a lot of payload. So yeah. And I'm a big fan for lightning where yeah. you can, and then keeping things light. So and then you have a, you have a canopy on the back. Is that right? Or just no? a, just a shell, just a shell. Yeah. Just a shell. And then on top of that, the front runner, their minimalist slimline rack that yep. I can put whatever, and I've done rooftop tent tests with it and sure. just my own gear. Yeah. And that's, that's really, yeah, that's such a, it. such a great truck. I I remember seeing the other day, I think you sent me a text with it hitting 300,000 miles. That was just awesome. Right. It was just right? awesome. So it's just so impressive. The reliability of those vehicles those have become cult and they deservedly uh, so for yeah. sure. Although that's, that's my conundrum right now Yeah, because it's, it's getting long in the tooth. It, yeah. It's, it runs fine, but you know, it's pressing on now towards 350,000 miles. So then where yeah. do I go? And you know, one of the things I'm exploring is maybe putting a 2.8 liter oh, yeah. diesel in it yeah, or, or selling. I, I don't know. Yeah. I have to think about that's it. That's tough. But, uh, yeah. That was our very first project vehicle. I remember that white one you for had. For Expeditions West. Yeah. We did a 2004 crew cab TRD Tacoma. Same one. Yeah. yeah. Same, same awesome. rig. It was a different year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What a cool yeah. rig. I mean, they're, oh, yeah. you can see over the hood. Yeah. They're more nimble. They feel more nimble anyway than the I later agree. generation Tacomas. They are a little smaller and that's yeah. what I think made them a little more useful in that regard. Those are such neat trucks. I totally agree. And it's just fun that you've had. Your, I mean, if you think about the money that you have saved by just keeping that same truck for all of this time, well, you know, when people will lease a vehicle and they're just constantly in this five, six, $700 a month payment program. Whereas if you just buy something great, like a BJ or a, or a Tacoma and drive it for 20 years, because it's almost 20 keep, years. I know it's just coming up going, on 20 years. It's right? yeah, unbelievable. Exactly. Yeah. You save so much. And then that truck is still probably worth 
12 to 15 grand, which surprises me. Yeah. That's amazing. And you could still find ones out there unmodified. Yeah. Especially the, you know, the crew cab, the double cab, you know, like you find them out there. Yeah. They were just daily drivers for people. Yeah. What a neat vehicle for sure. And we're going to take a quick break. This episode is supported in part by Demos Collective. One of the worst shovel problems you can have is not having one to begin with, not having it when you need it. And Demos Collective solves this problem with its world-class shovel designs that are all American-made. They are ultra-tough. They are also full-size but completely collapsible and are built to survive a lifetime of adventure. You can kit out your overland vehicle with Demos for summer overlanding with their all-new stainless steel Delta shovel. Use code OVERLAND10 for free shipping on your order. Thanks again, Demos, for supporting this podcast. The next thing I wanted to chat with you about, because you have met so many interesting people in your travels, is talk a little bit about the two to three people in your life that you've met in your travels that really inspired you or, or maybe they, they woke something up in you or you learned some really valuable life lesson from these people because you've accomplished so much, Brian. And, and maybe this isn't the case for you, but I know for me that at times I just needed that bit of inspiration to go that next step or to push on a little further. Um, who are those people for you? Well, I guess the qualification that you had was through my travels. Or, or my, otherwise, yeah. My first instance, you know, closer to home, definitely my father and, and mother, just because of who they are sure. and how they've been supportive, um, not, not necessarily financially, just, just supportive of, okay, you want to do this, you want to do that. I mean, I maybe I mentioned before, but, you know, my father was a paratrooper and then he went into the special forces. This was in the late 50s, early 60s. So it's not, sure. you know, recent, recent. And, uh, and then went into the movie business uh, after a short term uh, selling paper bags. He became a stuntman and was a professional stuntman uh, for the rest of his life. My mom, she's 81 going on 31. <laughs> um, she goes on, you know, three to five mile hikes every day and she's just solid world traveler, been everywhere. And I can safely say that um, just learning from them about this is your planet, go capture it, go, go see it, go experience it. Uh, I mean, when, when I had an opportunity to do a semester as an undergrad in college um, overseas, it was in London. I threw away the paperwork that that showed up and then, you know, my mom said, Hey, you know, by the way, you know, look at the specs and, you know, this is the kind of thing we can possibly uh, afford, you know, it's just really the round trip and then you have a stipend and et cetera. And that was, I did, I would have been, you know, I would have just stayed home that semester and just worked through class as I did. And that was what put the hook in me. And that's how I ended up getting into the field as an archeologist and going to the Middle East to work mm-hmm. as a professor I met in London. And, you know, it's just on from there. But as far as the travels go, I think one of the main influences for just capturing and, and, and learning, continue to learn and do until some power that be takes you out is uh, definitely Sir Fitzroy McLean. He, uh, you know, to kind of give a thumbnail, I, I did a review, uh, book report or a book review for, I can't remember, it was, it was some years ago for yeah. Overland Journal. Um, one of his, I think one of the best books is uh, Eastern Approaches. And he, um, he started a life, he was educated at Eton, went to Cambridge and went into the diplomatic corps, was posted as a junior diplomat to France and then into Russia. And this was before uh, the Second World War when he had days off. Like who, who does this? But when he had, maybe cause he's Scottish, when he had days off in Moscow, he would go just head East and, and he had his camera and he wasn't up to anything. At least if he happened to have been up to something other than just being a tourist, he never copped to it ever. 
Yeah. Uh, and you think by now, you know, he's passed away. So, um, you know, that would have come out, but he just would hit the road and take photos. And, you know, we'd have, you know, the kind of the precursor to the KGB and the FSB, the, the NKVD, they usually have some one or two people posted to him that would follow him. And sometimes he'd even meet up with them and get him on the truck that he was on. So sure. they could just, he could get on with his travels and yeah. do his thing. And then when the second world war started, he realized that he was going to be out of the loop as a diplomat. So he, he enlisted as a private. He's actually, I think one of only a few people, if not not just one or two or two or three, I think that uh, went from in the second world war from private to brigadier. I think in the U S we call it a brigadier general throughout the course of the war. Wow. But he enlisted, went to North Africa, ran into David Sterling, who at the time was setting up the SAS. I mean, they didn't have, you know, there was, this was a new unit, you know, they, and the original, and they linked up with the long range desert group in the early days. They just learned from, from learning the hard way about, uh, you know, how to conduct operations in those environments. And, you know, you see over time, well, a very short period of time, they started taking on native garb and native look and, and not having the grooming standards that normal soldiers had. And so at some point, you know, making the whole, that, that story short, uh, Churchill, found out that they had this diplomat trained as a commando and he was then sent into uh, Yugoslavia parachuted in to link up with Tito and, and, you know, it's just, his story goes on and on and about how he had to learn, you know, Serbo-Croatian. He spoke Russian, which is in the Slavic language group, like then Serbo-Croatian, you know, you can't say that you're fluent in it. I mean, you know, maybe some of the nouns or verbs or whatever are similar root, but so he had to bone up on that. Amazing. And, uh, and then after the war, he was, he continued on as a member, member of parliament. He actually became one during the war, you know, just as a dare just continued on. And he just, didn't stop right he wrote books on scottish cooking and photography and just just incredible even in the later in the 80s when uh, when russia and perestroika and glasnost and things were coming around and ronald sure. reagan and and uh, and gorbachev were kind of getting you know into the doing the tango a little bit about opening everything up and you know taking down the Berlin Wall. Gorbachev came over to Scotland and did a walk around with Fitzroy McLean and they could dismiss all the bodyguards, all the translators. Sure. And it just one-on-one conversation, wow. you know, that they had about what, who knows what, you know, they talked about. I'm sure that's, you know, somewhere out there, but, but anyway, he was quite inspiring just from his trajectory of, you know, what he did and what he accomplished. And uh, maybe, you know, obviously as, 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 uh, you know, SAS soldier, he just learned that, you know, like truly who dares wins, you know, you yeah. just have to go for it or, or just be quiet and, you know, sit down and, you know, don't raise your hand and be a complainer. And he was just really, uh, an inspiration. Yeah. You met him at one. Yeah. 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 And his family, uh, his wife, yeah. Lady McLean. And, uh, and two summers ago, I ran into one of his sons down on the island of Corchilla. You know, that's one of the funny things after the war, sure. uh, Tito let him purchase a, uh, a villa on the island of Corchilla, but foreigners weren't allowed to to own uh, property at that time. So they made Corchilla town a, a sort of a free town, kind of like Trieste. Sure. <laughs> and then then he purchased the property and then they changed the status again. So up until uh, 1991, when Croatia became independent, he was, I guess, in, in theory, the only foreigner who outright owned property in, in Yugoslavia. But I would say, you know, there's, there's even a precursor to him, although I never met this individual, but definitely um, Sir Richard uh, Francis Burton, not Richard Burton, the actor, but the traveler 
um, who I came across him because he had published articles when he was a British consul to Trieste in the 1800s, in the 1880s. He had traveled specifically to the southern part of Dalmatia to visit some lighthouses that the Austro-Hungarian Empire had built on some fairly remote islands, remote for the Mediterranean. He was a generation of educated well, and self-educated too, traveler where he would write about stuff and then publish it. Mm. So when I started doing my graduate work down there on some of these outer islands, uh, talking about things like the geology and the flora and the fauna and stuff like this, I asked a colleague uh, who was out of a museum in, the univer- uh, in Split, in the coastal city of Split, where can I find the best references for soils and geology and stuff like that for those smaller islands? And he said, oh, it's still Richard Burton's original writings from, from the 1800s. Oh, I mean, to just be aware of that. And at the same time, you know, when you really dive in on, on that individual, Richard Burton, I mean, he was, you know, the first Westerner, at least that anyone knows about to go to Mecca during the Hajj dressed in local garb, speaking Arabic. Mm. And he translated, you know, from Sanskrit, uh, the Kama Sutra, Mm. and it just goes on. And they, they believe that he could speak. And, you know, this is like when, in the days where you had to put your money where your mouth was, you know, upwards of almost 30 languages. Mm. And he wrote That's what texts on sword play and, yeah. and tricks that he had learned using a sword in the field from mm. his travels. And I mean, you know, just, he was a cartographer, mm. you know, I mean, he would map things and I mean, just, and that to me, that was just reading about him and reading his publications. You know, he's, um, you know, fellow of the Royal Geographic Society. Just his reading stuff that he had published was, it just boggled my mind. Mm. And that's a bar I, I know I'll never be able to attain that. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, that bar is so high. It but is. I, I like to it aim is. for, for, you know, you know, and I like to aim for stuff like that. For sure. I mean, what in, inspirational individuals and it, it's amazing what people can accomplish when they're not concerned with vanity metrics on Instagram, right? Right. <laughs> you can yeah. actually yeah. stop scrolling past other people's dreams and find some way to create your own. And those people, they worked so hard and they were so dedicated and, and much of what they accomplished was at very young ages too, uh, because people didn't really live that long back then. Some of these guys did, but. But also at a time when. Like, for example, to go to Mecca at that time as a Westerner, I mean, the punishment wasn't like, well, we're going to kick you out and put on the plane. I mean, you know, that was like punishment, pain by death or whatever. Yeah. You know, I mean, that was sure. like, you know, that was hardcore. Yeah. Or going to, to, to locations where, you know, <laughs> you couldn't like bone up on the language on, en route, you know, or read the, you know, the travel guide, uh, yeah. you know, on the way. And then that's, that's just stuff that we, we don't have that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's hard, you know, to have, find individuals like that. And then also just some of the publications where you're like, did he just stay up at late at night every night and write it out? I mean, it wasn't like he had Microsoft Word or something where he could, you know, delete that paragraph and you know, move that one around and yeah. change the spelling or whatever. And yeah, yeah they were anyway. prolific journalists back then. They just would journal every day and they would keep track of their experiences. And I think that when you write that much, like many of them did, they wrote on a daily basis. Churchill is a great example of that. I mean, he was absolutely prolific as a writer. I think he wrote more books after the age of 60 or 70 than most right. authors do in a lifetime. And I think it's it's when you journal every day and you write on a regular basis that you just get so much more efficient at it. I know that when I stop writing for a period of time because something else is demanding my attention, when I need to get back to it, it's a false start. It's hard to get started. You got to dive in. I struggle yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But those guys just wrote, they never stopped writing. I can't, I can't fathom it. Yeah, I mean, even, amazing. even now, I mean, obviously I'm in modern age, so, you know, 
they must have spent hours every yeah. night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They didn't have television or other sources of entertainment. They were, they were just voracious readers and writers. Yeah. Pretty impressive. Anybody else come to mind? That's a great one. Wow. Yeah. I would say those are the two, yeah. you know, like that really kind of stick out. Obviously Fitzroy McLean with my travels and Richard Burton, as I stumbled across him literally, uh, you know, in his, his publications, I should say, and then just started to do my own research. I'm like, who is this guy? Yeah. You know, like, and, and when he was done on the Dalmatian coast, that was at the end of his, his career. And you find out that, you know, he had published uh, drawings of like stone tools and, and descriptions of flora and geology and sediments and soils. And, and at that time, you have to recall that like before that, at least in the UK, there was a, a guy named William Smith, you know, who kind of, you know, predated him, who was, he's a sort of the father of modern English geology. And uh, at first people would just kind of, you know, sort of poo-pooed what he was up to. He was self-taught. Sure. And then Darwin came along and, you know, was obviously aware of, of William Smith identifying fossils in different strata. And then you have somebody like Richard Burton come along who was obviously aware of everything that those guys were up to. Sure. And then he, he went out in the field and just started writing about stuff. And at that time it wasn't like popular. People weren't ready for what Charles Darwin had to say. Yeah. Uh, at that time. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Impressive. Yeah. No, for sure. I guess to segue a little bit, recently you wrote an article for Overland Journal where you were talking a bit about mindset and safety around travel. And I guess it's important to preface, preface this whole conversation with the fact that the world is incredibly safe. It is a common misconception that the world is less safe today than it was in the past. And that is the furthest from the truth. The world is far safer than it ever has been. There's more periods and regions in peace time right now than ever in history. It is very safe time to be a human traveling and bouncing around the world. But if we do come in with a little bit of a mindset and some preparation in our travels, we can help reduce that likelihood of something going wrong. And that could be just as simple as someone breaking into your room and stealing your camera, which is, you know, very disruptive to a, a trip. But uh, let's talk a little bit about what you discussed in that article, primarily around lodging and kind of that mindset with the traveler. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with it's common sense in many cases. Um, you don't have to delve into it that deep as a traveler or you don't have to be paranoid. Mm. I know that a lot of people will kind of go for that as though, wow, it sounds like you're really paranoid when you travel. I'm actually not. I, yeah. I totally get into the experience of being outside of where I live and my culture. But at the same time, there isn't, it's not a big deal to like walk around the hotel that you're staying in and go, Hey, how would I get out of here if, if there's a fire? Yeah. Um, and okay, obviously that maybe, maybe is a little bit of a, uh, it's not so much of a warm fuzzy. That's a cold prickly, you know, like what if there's a fire in this hotel, but then you walk around you're like, Oh, that's cool. That's where the gym is. All right. Sure. Well, I got that down or they, well, hey, there's they a little a roof, cafe right over they there. They got yeah. the rooftop bar. Okay, yeah. cool. Or, you know, and there's, there's where the exits are. Yeah. And so you just explored your environment that you're going to be in for the next day, two, three, whatever it happens to be week or a couple, couple weeks or a couple months. So now you've kind of expanded your knowledge of what's around you. That's really how I see it. Now, maybe that's just being an anthropologist. That's how I see it. You know, there's nothing I'm not worried about people coming in, uh, you know, breaking into my room. Obviously when you're staying anywhere, that's not your own setup. You have to assume that it's, it might not be secure. Sure. I won't say not safe. It's just not secure. 
Sure. I mean, you know the deal. Sometimes you travel to places where, you know, something on your wrist is more with that alone, a whole village could prosper for five years. Sure. You know, and or they'll never even have any uh, technology like that. Maybe they don't need a technology like that. Right. I think that, you know, there are certain safety, uh, I don't know, precautions, I guess you could say that that people can take along the road. But some of it's like have a flashlight. Yeah. I mean, I've been in hotels where the power goes out and you're like, okay, got the flashlight. Cool. You know, there wasn't, I wasn't being paranoid Yeah, (laughs) to have a flashlight, you know, a simple one. Um, There's a lot of other stuff. What are some other thoughts that come to mind? Now, if I remember a lot of this came from when you were working with teams in the field, you guys had like a safety protocol or you had some kind of a, is that, that's where a lot of this came from. You were doing documentation for different groups on safety in the field. Was that kind of where a lot of this was? Yeah. And it kind of, I could safely say that I got sort of sucked into it in a way from, uh, from a colleague who's an exploration geologist, um, teaching courses originally was more focused on sort of the search and rescue, more of the survival side of things. And then it just, I won't say it spiraled from there, but it kind of expanded to working with people that are sent to austere locations, um, remote locations for, for work. And it's not because they wanted to go there. It might be that the, you know, corporate just goes, Scott, we're sending you to Kazakhstan because you're the guy that knows how to operate the software for the drilling equipment for our gear there. And you're going to teach three guys there how to use that gear. And you say, yeah, sure. But meanwhile, you know, you live in the inner city of somewhere in North America. You don't own a a vehicle because you don't need one. You take the bus, you're saving your cash. You know, you want to buy a property somewhere outside of town eventually. And then you get sent to some place where they hand you the keys to four wheel drive. And there's like a, you know, whatever, 15 kilometer, 15 minute, two hour, whatever drive to the work location. And in the past, there would have been zero training for you Yeah. other than get your visa, you know, get your shots, get squared away, you know, and, and yeah. then there you go. And so now um, there are some specialty firms that focus on the training. Obviously it's focused on region and environment. So, you know, you're not going to learn about a bear like grizzly bears if you're being, you know, sent to some place in Central America or something like that. Sure. But uh, that's kind of where the the focus is. And it's, it's not over the top stuff. You know, I, some of the courses that I've uh, provided, you know, I start out with, okay, everyone just do an internet search for um, geologists taken hostage and it's just pages and pages and pages and pages. And then, and then, so then how about this tourist taken hostage, you know, and then it's just uh, even more pages that sure. come up on an internet search. And then we'll say, okay, what's the safest country or what's the safest country that we feel, you know, when it's presented to the rest of the UN, uh, everyone usually says Switzerland or, you know, or Liechtenstein or some San Marino, sure. some little place. Okay. So type in Swiss tourists taken hostage and then it still comes up with stuff. Yeah. So it, it doesn't matter. And, you know, like you said, the world is a safe place, but if you're transiting areas, or working in areas, it can help to just kind of be aware so that you're not the target. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, the point isn't to make other people the target, but just so that, you know, you're not presenting yourself as, as something that's soft or, or, you know, easily accessed or, sure. you know, your gear, you know, there's, there's a lot of different angles to it. And there are a lot of other people that are definitely more well-versed than I am on, on teaching these courses, but, uh, it's an interesting aspect. You know, of what are some other or, things that come to mind, uh, along those lines? Um, so it could be, the way that you operate your vehicle or, you know, even the process of checking into the hotel. What are some things that come to mind for you? Those practical pieces of advice that the listener could really back your vehicles in when you, even if it's just a rental car, even if you're, you're on Maui, back it in. If you talk with people that teach uh, public safety driving to law enforcement or fire, most accidents happen backing out of spaces. Those are people, men and women that are trained in 
being, you know, active and driving at speed and, and going from zero to a hundred, not just physically, but, you know, from getting a call and going, and that's when most accidents occur, you know, in pulling out of a space is backing out of the space or sure. bumping into something. So back in and also backing in, there isn't any quantitative information, but it, it definitely conveys that the owner of that vehicle is aware. Sure. They're spa- spatially aware of their vehicle and their ownership. That is their vehicle. They have the keys. Yeah. Uh, the only downside with backing in, I guess, is if you have, depending on how the rear of your vehicle opens, sometimes you could, it could be uh, occluded by some bushes or a wall or something like that. I mean, that's one of my start from that. You know, it always helps depending on where you are. You know, if there is like a concierge or something like that, obviously that's more highbrow kind of travel, but talk to the people at mm-hmm. the hotel. I mean, they're, they're going to know like, Hey, this is the place around the corner. It's just a locals only thing. You know, obviously you have to pay attention to that, Yeah. you know, but to feel it out as, as you go. Yeah, That's probably the only times I've ever felt really uncomfortable as a traveler is literally going into the locals only bar and it just, they just don't. They're like, we see tourists every day. This is our chance to get away from all of you. Would you just, and then here you yeah, are rolling yeah. on in. You know? It's probably the only time I've ever felt uncomfortable. It's just, it's literally the back alley. But then there's also a, a hundred more times than that, that I go into the locals only backcountry bar and, and they're, they're just stoked to see us. So. Oh yeah. And then yeah. tell you about their country, totally. their, their city, yeah. you know, what's going yeah. on. Oh, Hey, yeah. by the way, you're here during the, the olive harvest, you know, oh, it's so we good. have the best olive oil, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different aspects to it, you know, knowing how to get out of your hotel room besides the, the front door. Yeah. You know, or I should say the door sure. uh, of your room, um, how to secure the door, the, the downside of just securing your door in case, you know, you need to be accessed from somebody in the hallway for safety reasons. Now sure. you've blocked that. Yeah. There's, there, there are various aspects to it. I mean, it's, it's a very uh, deep <laughs> field of study. It, it is. And it depends on your it location is. too. Sure. I would say that depending on where I'm going, I'm not concerned with things like that. Um, yeah. It really depends, you know, if it's some, yeah. some little boutique hotel somewhere or just some, you know, um, B and B where it's on the ground floor and it's, it's on the Island of Mull in Scotland. Okay. I'm not worried about that. Yeah. You know, I don't, nobody's going to come charging in, you know, maybe, you know, somebody after having some single malt or something like that, but that's, you know, that's about it. <laughs> it knocks on you the know? wrong door. Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. That's but, pretty much um, it. And most of it is randomness. In fact, any of the real troubles that I've had have been in places where I would have never expected it to happen. You were just the person who I was, was just, the wrong place was at the wrong time. Totally yeah. randomness. Yes. Whereas the places, well, I mean, we, you and I did have some moments of tension in Kenya. Were we in Lodwar? Was that where we were? We some North of, oh yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah that was, I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah you, you were having more tension than I was with yeah. that. some, somebody who had yeah, he would, he was drinking he, and he was yeah, making yeah, he it very, fight. Clear, very clear that he, he was a boxer and he wanted to, he wanted to challenge have his, you, have, have his hands with me. And after looking at his knuckles, I realized like, this is probably not a fight that I want, that I even want. So we, I think we worked really hard to de- dispel that one. And we did. Too. And yeah, if, yeah, I think yeah. it was the locals that finally came to my aid, but yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it was, it was moments of tension for sure. And or, and, or Stanley Illman walking up, you know, yeah, with his, he helped Hey, too. you guys break it up here. Okay. we got to work on this truck and we're <laughs> yeah, trying to get totally, things fixed. Okay. Totally. Problem with the 24 oh, volt. You know? Yeah. And it's so challenging because you know, what the guy wanted was money and you, you just don't do that. You don't just give out money in, especially someone who's clearly intoxicated and being aggressive and so when you tell them no, they just don't, it just ex- escalates from there. But it, fortunately it didn't get too bad. So 
slightly uncomfortable. That was about it. So those are all great pieces of advice for sure. And that also leads me to something that I do like to ask on a regular basis on these podcasts. Um, That would be kind of your favorite books, books that you maybe gift the most often to others or the books that have maybe made the biggest difference for you as a traveler, as an individual. And it can be anything at all. I mean, it's, uh, I think in the last podcast, you talked about the Land Rover books that you read your son, Maybe, maybe some, what were those again? It's the Landy series. Yeah. And I even did a sort of a, like an overview of them for one of the journals not too long ago. Um, nothing, I didn't delve into any of the specific uh, uh, books, Yeah, but I talked about it. And the funny thing is it's like the Bugs Bunny cartoons where there's the child aspect of it where they're like, oh, wow, that's kind of fun. And, you know, the little Landy, you know, has a eyes and a mouth kind of thing. And, sure. the, you know, the bumper moves and makes a smile. But then uh, the owner breaks out the high lift jack and <laughs> starts doing stuff, you know, and it obviously as an owner of, or, you know, driver of, of overland vehicles. You're like, well, that's cool. He's, you know, breaking the thing out. And then when you see the little drawing that the, uh, the author has, you know, it's, it's, everything's legit. The, the wheels chalked. Cool. You know, like, yeah. it's, it's like, real, that's awesome. Real deal. Yeah. That's awesome. I think that's a good way to, you know, like kind of keep your kids interested and, you know, and I don't know, or maybe it's not the best thing when they start to look for some arconic, uh, you know, 110 Defender. Like, <laughs> it's going to hey, cost them some money. <laughs> I want one of those, you know, when I turn 16, but, uh, I don't know. Um, it's, it's obviously a deep, you could dive deep on, on the books, you know, yeah. the, the, one of the, it's hard to find. I think I've mentioned it to you before. You'll have to find it like uh, it's, it's out of publication, but it's a book by Lionel Kaysen. who's a classical archeologist and it's called, uh, it's a translation, Periplus Mars Erythrae, which is uh, travels in the Red Sea. We don't even know who the author was. They mm. know about the time that it was written because the author mentions different personnel, like Romans that are in Petra at the same time. And they know that the person obviously was a, a mariner and a trader, but it's basically like a traveler's guide to going down the Red Sea and the different villages. And it reads, it doesn't, doesn't have, it's clear that it's, it's aimed at just a general audience. There must be a lot of other texts out there. Uh, I don't know if they're findable or people know, but it's just aimed at uh, somebody who would be trading or traveling in that area. So it has information like when you pull into this port, be prepared to bribe the dock guards with uh, two amphora of some mediocre to bad wine. They won't know the difference, but they'll guard your cargo overnight, you know, as if it were their own. Or, you know, when you pull into this harbor, make sure you do it at high tide. Uh, And if you're there uh, during the full moon, be sure to check out the wrestling competition held just outside the harbor wall. Amazing. Uh, Or, you know, on the dock, be prepared to purchase incense, myrrh, slave musicians. (laughs) And I mean, like bizarre, just random things. And then the author just moves on to the next location. But the author also talks about um, different types of vessels at length, about what they look like. Uh, Some of them clearly, the description is almost like a rib, like a Zodiac kind Mm. of inflatable. And he's surmising there must be animal skins or something. And they're just a near shore floating boat with somebody paddling. And then other ones that are deeper draft with sail, this and that and the other. Fascinating. It doesn't have any other purpose other than that. Wow. So unlike, you know, we're reading authors that are, that are maybe from around the Mediterranean contemporaries and even earlier, you know, they're writing it for different audiences uh, in order to impress people. And this mm. one clearly isn't. So it's, it's hard to find, but it can be tracked down. And then, uh, I don't know, right now I'm reading Anthony Bourdain's book, Kitchen Confidential. Yeah. He's what a, a loss we had with oh, him. Oh man. So. You know, and just, he's like a chef mm. anthropologist. I don't know. <laughs> Awesome human. Yeah. Yeah. Like I mentioned, uh, Fitzroy McLean's book, Eastern Approaches, but there are so many I have on my, what do I have on my desk right now? Some training manual on combatives. (laughs) Yeah, sure. 
it's from the second world war. It's just, you know, everyone, all the people that are demonstrating different moves and techniques, they're all wearing like back when you wore a tie, you know, as part of like your class a, mm. you know, just interesting stuff like that. Yeah. I think that's my, my, my current quiver of things that I'm reading through. Well, that's good. It's fun because we, over the last couple of days, we've been talking about, well, for the last year, we've been talking about what our next trip might be. And our last one was notable with Uganda and Kenya. I think that something in um, Eastern Europe would be pretty fun. I'm thinking maybe starting somewhere in Croatia. We talked about that. Yeah, definitely. And then heading south, maybe ending up in Greece at some point. So hopefully the next time we do a podcast, we'll do it from a cafe in Moldova or something like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's our, hope. Yeah. Some, some, uh, in the middle of Ljubljana in yeah. Slovenia or something else from pizzeria or something. Like yeah. This, let's hope know? so. Let's hope so. What would you give as some of the most important pieces of advice to someone who is just getting started with international travel or overland travel, what would be the thing that if you were sitting down with a a newly graduated college student that wanted to go see the world, what would be some of the advice that you would give to that person, taking into consideration all of the advice and the, the great insights that you've received from others? What would be the advice that you would give to a new person to overland travel? That's that's an interesting question. I, I would say that, especially now, now meaning in 2021, yeah. You know, not 1990. You can do so much research online about where you might be going, the food, the culture, everything like this. I would say to somebody just out of you know high school or college, they want to hit the road, leave the McDonald's behind, mm. leave the Whole Foods and the supermarket kind of attitude or whatever it is. Leave that here. That's going to be here when you come back. Uh, experience it how they experience it wherever you're going. Uh, so if you have to wake up at 4 a.m. to go and uh, buy the bread at the shop or get the cheese from the cheesemonger, do it, experience it, you know, and, and take it in. It's always good to learn, you know, I mean, everyone says this, but uh, learn a couple of words if it is a language that you, you don't speak. Uh, so you have like a hi, thanks, hello, goodbye, you know, and, or even a fun phrase, you know, where they'll be like, wow, you know, and that might be your segue into, you know, going out in the field with somebody or being invited for dinner or something mm-hmm. like this. You know, I think it's important to pay attention to the fact that, you know, when you you are in a different culture. There might be certain kinds of dress. Uh, and it's not so that you don't stick out. It's just so that you're not offending. You know, there might be issues with, uh, like I, I worked a lot in the South Pacific and places where men wear sarongs. That's just yeah. how it is. You know, if I were walking around Prescott, Arizona, you know, people would be like, hmm, okay, I'm not really sure what's going on with that. Sure. But that's just standard, standard issue there. There might be places where showing your legs, it's just, it's not, it's not appreciated. Sure. Uh, so you know, it's okay. Be aware of that. And then it's, it's you know, just pay attention and try to try out what the locals do. You know, I think now that, you know, there's a little more access online to information and you, you can kind of have an idea about what it is to expect, um, at least from the first instance. You know, once yeah. obviously, you know, when you're traveling, you know, you get there and you're like, wow, this is not what I expected. And that always happens. It's a lot easier now with, you know, debit cards and sure. things like that, where you don't have to have like traveler's checks. I don't even know last time I had a traveler's check, which is cool. Yeah. I mean, that helps you out. That lightens your load, you know, and everything's, you know, not as complicated, you know, at the same time, you know, just kind of be aware of what you're doing and where you're going and, you know, have fun yeah. really. And, you know, pack accordingly. Don't be afraid to like buy something where you're going. You know, you don't have to take every Everything with you, you know, maybe when you get there, if it's a colder climate, buy something cool, some local jacket that, you know, local people have, maybe it's wool, got a hood, whatever it happens to be. Mm -hmm. And then just take things on as you need them. And then maybe, you know, depending on, you know, what you're doing, if you're then going back to a warm climb, 
give things away, you know, yeah, give <laughs> gifts to the locals. Right? Yeah, yeah, for yeah, sure. Exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, it's a lot of stuff to see out there. There is, there's so much to see. And the important thing is to go. And as you've demonstrated in your decades of travel, it's not about the gear. It's not about the vehicle. It's about making a decision to see and experience something new. If we invest our money in those experiences, as opposed to things, then we end up with having a lot more stories to tell to future generations at the end of the day. You know, you talked a lot about people who have inspired you. And, and as my friend, you have inspired me deeply through the years. And I'm just grateful for that, Brian. I'm grateful for all the times that you have helped the numerous articles that you've written for Overland Journal. Just recently, you and I were talking about watches and you were giving me all of these deep insights into military watches, uh, just things that I have just greatly enjoyed in our, in our travels and our conversations together. Um, so thank you for being an inspiration to me, Brian. And, and thank you as always for being on this podcast. We were going to talk about watches today, but we, That's again, be a different again, time. we hit, again, we hit <laughs> over an hour. Um, so maybe we will get to watches, uh, when we are at that pizzeria somewhere, somewhere, right, exactly. somewhere in Eastern Europe, who knows, but thank you again, Brian, for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me again, Scott. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. And we will talk to you all next time.